that the argument, or maybe you'd call it a rationalization, is not so much that you know, these are folks who are saying, I don't care about the institution so long as it, I have my political survival, but maybe it's more of a case of, well, if this goes down and the president's impeached, this will be a disaster for the party, and then Democrats will get in, and there will be all kinds of awful policies, and they'll appoint these horrible judges, and so therefore, I actually am looking, you know, looking out for the greater good. And so our institutions may take a short-term shot, but they're, they're strong enough, they're, they're resilient enough, and Donald Trump is kind of a one-off, unusual person, and it'll all be fine in the long run. Hey everybody, it's Jenna from the Democracy Works team, and this is actually the only time you are going to hear me in this episode. Well, I guess maybe that's not entirely true. Uh, if you listen really closely uh, at the end of the episode, you'll hear me pop up from the background uh, to help Michael and Chris remember the the name of an author that we had on our show earlier this year. Uh, but beyond that, um, this is going to be a roundtable discussion between our own Michael and Chris, along with Michael Baranowski, who is a political science professor at Northern Kentucky University and one of the hosts of a show called The Politics guys. Um, we were really grateful for him to, to invite Michael and Chris uh, to, to talk with him. This episode will also be going out on the Politics Guys feed. Um, and they have a, a pretty wide-ranging discussion about democratic legitimacy. And so, you know, what does it mean for people to have trust in government and the institutions of government? You'll hear Michael Baranowski mention that he is an institutionalist. And um, for those not familiar with kind of the ins and outs of of, of political science, um, that is a, a field of, of study that looks at how structures, rules, norms, all these kind of things constrain the, the choices and actions of individuals within a, a large political institution. So that could be, for example, um, the, the, the federal bureaucracy, the you know Department of Justice, Department of State, all these kind of things. Uh, so basically all of these structures that, that are in place to help act as a, as a check on the, the power or the, the latitude that any one individual has. And of course, uh, with the impeachment inquiry going on right now, we are seeing some of these uh, individual bureaucrats kind of part of this, this institutional framework, come forward and, and tell their stories. Um, they also touch on the concept of epistemic polarization, which is something that um, we first heard about on this show in our episode about conspiracies and the, the new conspiracism with uh, Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Muirhead when they were on talking about their book, A Lot of People Are Saying. So you'll hear that come up here. Um, we also talk a little bit about our discussion with Andrew Sullivan and some of his hypotheses that we might be heading toward a culture where things like impeachment are going to become uh, a new norm uh, in and of itself as you know we, we continue to become more and more politically polarized. So without further ado, here is our own Michael Berkman and Chris Beam in conversation with Michael Baranowski of The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University and host of the Politics Guys podcast. And I'm here today with Chris Beam and Michael Berkman from Penn State's McCourtney Institute for Democracy and hosts of the Democracy Works podcast. And, 
You know, I thought that since this will be going out to both of our audiences, there are going to be a lot of people who won't be familiar with either you guys or with me. And so maybe we could start by, you know, saying a little bit about our backgrounds, our respective podcasts, that sort of thing. So, uh, 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 Chris, Michael, what do you think? Does that sound good for you? Sounds fine. Who do you want to start? Uh, why don't you, you guys start? Go ahead. Well, so uh, we've been doing this now for about two years almost, yeah? And uh, we um, we call ourselves uh, at the McCourney Institute Partisans for Democracy. And our idea was always that uh, we don't want to take sides, but we do want to defend democracy, its institutions, and uh, and especially in the current climate, uh, kind of stick up for democracy uh, whenever we can. And that means helping people kind of understand at a, at a higher level what's going on, at a, at a more abstract level. Uh, not so much the horse race, not so much the news, uh, or at least the, the daily kind of news cycle, but more about what is going on and how does it impact democracy and how do we understand it in terms of democracy? Yeah, so uh, Mike, that was Chris, this is Michael. And one thing we try to do therefore is to have on guests who are involved in democracy in some way. Uh, some of them are, sometimes we have on people who are within government doing the hard work of, bureauc of uh, democracy. At other times we have on activists. Uh, we have on scholars who are studying different aspects of democracy. We have on uh, journalists who cover democracy and politics. Uh, we have on people that are area experts on other countries uh, which are undergoing their own struggles with democratic erosion. So we have our guests and we try to have some discussion about what the issues they raise about democracy are and why they're important. Yeah, and I think that's just so important because it's easy to get lost in the day to day and not you know, be able to, to pull back and look at uh, our democratic institutions. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited about having a chance to talk with you guys, because on the politics, guys, we're very much, well, we do a lot of the day-to-day, -day, kind of a weekly you know, uh, review of what's been going on from a bipartisan perspective. We always have someone from the left, and, and usually that's me, or someone from the right on. And uh, while we do some interviews and so forth with people who can kind of pull back, we're much more you know, day to day or or week to week oriented, and I think having that uh, uh, having that again ability to pull back and look at that is so important. And uh, you know, given as you said, what's been going on, I, I thought this is really raises some very important questions about our institutions and how they function. There's been all this talk about, you know, constitutional crises and so forth. And and so this is a, a great, in a weird way, a great moment for us to maybe be having this conversation. And one thing, you know, I realized that, you know, two of our last four presidents now have been through impeachment proceedings and, and three of our last nine. And to me, that, that sounds kind of Unusual, I would say, and I was wondering what you guys thought. You know, what what does that tell us about the moment that we're in, or the the era that we're in? I think, at some level, you know, you're right. There is something distinctive about uh, politics right now. Um, I don't know that it's it's reasonable to expect that the phenomenon of impeachment would be any different from a lot of other uh, challenges and and. Um, undermining of norms uh, throughout kind of the democratic process. And, and given the fact that you have such a, uh, a hyper-partisan uh, electorate and you have such a knife edge in terms of balance of power 
within the electorate, it just kind of within the government, I mean, it kind of stands to reason that impeachment is going to be yet another manifestation of that broader phenomenon. Yeah, you know, Mike, it could also be presidential power is much greater now than it used to be. And so presidents may push what it is that they can do more than they might have in the past. Uh, you know, when I, I was thinking about this question, you had uh, told us about it in advance. And, you know, I, I think of this impeachment as much more like Nixon's impeachment than it is like Clinton's, uh, in that both dealt with a president abusing his power in pursuit of damaging a potential political yeah. opponent. Uh, Clinton's, I think, was of a whole different thing because Clinton's behavior wasn't really related to his powers right. as president or his behavior as president. Uh, so maybe the connection between Nixon and uh, between Nixon and Trump is Roger Stone. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess so. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you guys have been watching, obviously, all of the the, the media coverage uh, of things and so forth. And that point you made earlier about it uh, being perhaps the reason we have more of these impeachments is we have a much more powerful presidency. You know, I think that's a that's a viewpoint that we haven't heard a lot. I think there was an article maybe a couple weeks ago I saw it was either Reason or some kind of Cato libertarian sort of thing making that same argument. And it's interesting to me that in all the talk about this, we don't really tend to look at maybe some of those you know institutional structural factors as to why impeachment might be more likely today than when the presidency was, was far less powerful. <laughs> it stands to reason, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, and and um, you also have a a Congress that is far more oriented towards uh, party yeah. than it is towards defense of its of itself as an institution. Right. What was it uh, that uh, that Charlie Charlie uh, Charlie Dent? Yeah, that Charlie Dent told us when he was here. So Charlie Dent, the former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania, who. Uh, left in 2018, uh, told us that one of his concerns is that uh, many in the Republican Party don't see themselves as uh, protecting or speaking for Congress, yeah. but rather protecting and speaking yeah. for Trump. Uh, and so, you know, given that, I think you're, uh, you're going to have this highly partisan kind of environment. Where yeah, he actually said something really interesting that hadn't occurred to me. It's almost like we have more of a parliamentary system of government with just yeah. two parties. And, and so that's not a great recipe for defending— Well, not in a divided system. Right, not in right. a divided power system. Right. I mean, the, the thing about parliamentary systems is that the executive is not usually separate from the— And usually has uh, from you know, the yeah, less, less power. Um, but it, it just stands to reason that you're going to have um, uh, more, you know, almost exclusive, exclusive focus on the president yeah. when— Congress sees itself as acting as an yeah. agent of the president and the president's party. Right. When you have a situation where separated powers actually means one party has one institution and another party has another, it's, it's kind of, I don't think we should be that surprised that they push it to the, to the extremes of their power in, in that yeah. kind of conflict. I, mean, I really feel like this is something that maybe, I don't know if I'd say that the framers got wrong, but it seems to me that they built a system based on a, uh, an assumption of institutional struggle but really what we have now is a system based on party struggle. And so you could take that a step further and say, well, given that, maybe we don't have the ideal institutional setup for kind of how this is broken down. They, they should have foreseen the formation of parties that came about yeah. very quickly. But they really designed a system that didn't really seem to incorporate consideration yeah, of parties. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that adds to this is just the um, 
the decline of uh, any sense of uh, my my opponent is merely my opponent and not my enemy. Or maybe it's the the rise of the alternative position where my opponent, if my opponent is to, is were able to achieve power, it would be a disaster for the yeah. country. And the more people understand that point of view, the more people who reflect that point of view, the harder it is for anything to happen in Congress. And so that leads to, inevitably, the executive branch taking on more power. So this kind of thing just kind of, I think, feeds on yeah. itself. And and so, again, not a surprise that we're, we're where we yeah, are. And I think you see a lot of that in the, obviously, in the media coverage. I mean, I've been doing going some back and forth and sort of the worldview that you get on this from, you know, the Fox News front page or, or as opposed to MSNBC. It's just it makes your it makes your head spin. And sometimes I wonder the extent to which the members of Congress who are pushing these narratives actually believe what they're saying or if they're just basically playing to what they know the the media audience is going to be there or if it's just maybe a self-reinforcing kind of thing. I, I certainly think you see more on the Republican side of playing to the particular Republican media or conservative media than you necessarily do on the Democratic side. Uh, but, you know, I, I see some of the antics that have gone on at the uh, at the hearings uh, by the Republicans in particular as I mean, what are those things intended to accomplish? Other than to make some kind of stink on Fox News in the evening, I, I don't see any really any yeah, purpose to yeah. it. You know, Jeff Flake, they asked him, is it true that you think um, if it was a, a secret ballot that, you know, Trump would get 30 votes? And he said, yeah, or 35. And he said, no, at least no more than 30. And and if that's true, I mean, kind of got a laugh. If it's true, I don't I don't, I don't know that I think that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's, it just kind of bespeaks the fact that people are are more concerned with uh, their own constituency, their own survival in office than they are with um, with you know any other dimension. Yeah, Charlie, bothers me less because impeachment's a political process. It's not a judicial process. Right, that's that's absolutely true. However, I mean and and Charlie Dent said, you know, you, look, you're not seeing profiles of courage. If you're looking for that, you should just go yeah. look elsewhere, right? I also think we don't know yet. I mean, in, in the Republican House, we have to remember that the Re Republican House members are, for the most part, with some exceptions, obviously, but for the most part, especially after 28, you know, dealing with some pretty conservative yeah. districts. A, a, lot of the, a lot of the more moderate districts, or at least competitive districts, got washed out in 2018. There's still some out there, but a lot of them got washed out. You know, and the more that that happens, of course, the more conservative that Republican coalition, the more kind of committed to Trump, I think, that that Republican coalition in the House is going to become. The thing that strikes me about the Senate is the silence. You know, I mean, with the exception of, you know, Ron Johnson on the Sunday shows and Lindsey Graham and some of the others, there's been a lot of no yeah. comment from Republican senators. So I think the I think the uh, verdict is still out. Well, <laughs> Well, yeah, the yeah. Verdict is still out. <laughs> the verdict on, hasn't even been drawn yet. Right? On, on, on what we're on what we're going to see from uh, from but, some of the Republicans. I mean, I wonder though if, if at least both in the House and in the Senate, the argument, or maybe you'd call it a rationalization, is not so much that you know these are folks who are saying I don't care about the institution so long as it I have my political survival, but maybe it's more of a case of well, 
if this goes down and the president's impeached, this will be a disaster for the party, and then Democrats will get in, and there will be all kinds of awful policies, and they'll appoint these horrible judges. And so, therefore, I actually am looking, you know, looking out for the greater good. And so our institutions may take a short-term shot, but they're, they're strong enough, they're, they're resilient enough, and Donald Trump is kind of a one-off, unusual person, and it'll all be fine in the long run. Yeah, you know, I have I, I uh, and I have no problem with that position on the part of Republican uh, senators and House members. They are, you know, they are, they they are elected officials. What what concerns me a little bit more though is their refusal to stand up for the prerogatives yeah. of Congress because I think that's going to have long term implications uh, in, in in terms of subpoenas, in terms of testimony from uh, people uh, around Donald Trump or even not really around Donald Trump who aren't being allowed to testify. Uh, they're, not, they're not standing up for, for that. And that, I think, is going to be really problematic in the long term. I mean, I guess they've, they've stood up in some other ways, like when they pushed on uh, some veto overrides. Now, there haven't been the votes to actually override the vetoes, but there have been majorities for at least a couple of the president's vetoes. And so, I mean, there's that. So they're not completely laying, you know, laying over, playing dead, that sort of thing. Around yeah, policy. around policy, exactly. Around policy. Yeah. But, but I'm, ta- I'm talking about the fact that we're seeing, you know, an unprecedented level of obstruction against con- congressional prerogatives for yeah. oversight, yeah. for subpoenas. And, uh, and that's where r- the Republicans' behavior in the House and the Senate's a little bit more concerning, that they're not standing up a bit more for the privileges of the House uh, to get a hold of to, to have their subpoenas be yeah, uh, recognized. Absolutely. So how do you, I mean, how do you guys see sort of the, I guess the best case outcome of this entire process? And I don't mean from a partisan standpoint who wins and who loses, but at this point, you, what's the outcome you think that does the least long-term damage to kind of the legitimacy of our system, our institutions is, is, or is there even an outcome at this point that would, that would be that like that? Do you think? Well, I have a yeah, I have a couple a couple of ideas along this line. I mean, one is that I hope that one thing that comes out of this is some education, some some uh, communication to the American public about what the bureaucracy does, about what the role of all these government officials is supposed to be. Uh, you know, the fact that we have this uh, apolitical bureaucracy. Intentionally, we had a whole progressive era to go over this stuff, right? To move away from machine politics, to move away from yeah. political control of the bureaucracy. So it would be nice to have some sort of a, uh, for, some, for one thing to come out of this, for there to be some appreciation for what, these, uh, for what the role of these people uh, might be in a democracy. I think we saw a little bit of that last week, actually. Uh, I think there's some, other, there's some other things that I hope to see come out of this, too. I hope that whatever is decided... Uh, is uh, is followed by both parties and by all the actors involved that the decisions that are accepted. I mean, I think it's already we're down a, a really bad road here on the way that congressional subpoenas are being are, are being completely ignored. Yeah. And uh, you know, I hope that we come out of this with a sense for Americans about why corruption is bad in a democracy. Yeah. And I, and I think one thing that's really gotten lost is what is this all about in the first place that we are having an impeachment hearing? Right. And, you know, it is getting at fundamental notions of corruption 
concerning foreign powers that were a particular concern of the founders when they were putting the Constitution together. Absolutely. And so I think it's important that Americans understand what this is all about. And that is hard to uh, <laughs> communicate because of all the smoke yeah, well, and mirrors. You know, I, I think in up. terms of the yeah. difficulty of communicating it, there's this, there's this sense, certainly on the right, that anyone who uh, pushes back against the president in the executive branch is part of the deep state. And, and some, I think, have argued, well, no, that's just how the bureaucracy works, no matter who the president is. And, and it's one thing to you know, stage a coup. It's something else to just kind of engage in uh, your, your due diligence or your duty as a, as a bureaucrat, as, a, as another official who also has a duty to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I think that that's kind of gets lost in, in the shuffle there, that, that this is kind of how the bureaucracy operates no matter who the president is. Right. You know, this coup language makes me crazy because if Trump is impeached, it's not like Hillary Clinton's coming into <laughs> right. office. You know, this idea that somehow the election is being overturned, that's not going to happen at all. Uh, you know, if, if Donald Trump is impeached, then Mike Pence yeah. takes office. It's hardly, hardly a coup and hardly a renunciation of the election. Now, I, I appreciate the, the depth of uh, Donald Trump's support in the public and that it could well be perceived this way. Uh, but I think that's, that's important. Along the lines, too, of this uh, deep state idea, you know, I hope that one thing that comes across here is the idea that in a democracy, as opposed to an autocracy, uh, government employees take an oath to the yeah. Constitution, yeah. not to the leader. And now the president doesn't accept this. And, you know, that's his business and that's his privilege. But I do think it's the responsibility of others who are involved in this process to say that's not actually the way yeah. things work. In a I think there are a lot of people who feel like the president is uh, is an elected autocrat, basically. And once you once you win the election, it's your government to do with as you wish until you are, uh, you know, taken out of office through, you know, being unelected or being uh, defeated for reelection or, you know, serving your two terms, which obviously isn't isn't how the system's designed. It goes, it goes much deeper than that. I mean, there's this fundamental notion in, in uh, uh, Donald Trump's metaphysics <laughs> that, that the world is transactional, yeah. right? That, that there is simply a matter of you, um, you know, bargaining, making a deal, and getting what you want. And what you're seeing from, from, these, from these bureaucrats, which, you know, when, when often that word is thrown around, it's, it's, it's an epithet, right? It's a bad thing. But, but you see these people who have taken oaths, who, you know, are committed to public service, who uh, try to behave with honor and rectitude. And, and those things just are not, and, you know, I would love to hear a counter-argument to that, right? I mean, I'd love to hear someone who, who saw this testimony and didn't come away with that, and with that impression. And in, in Donald Trump's worldview, there just is no place for that. There's no legitimacy to that. It's simply a matter of getting what you want through the actions of another, you yeah. know, by coming to an agreement with another. And, and I think that is, in some ways, the worst thing that is coming out of this presidency because it's, it's almost impossible to sustain a democracy unless there is some common sense of honor, yeah. of saying what you believe, of, of um, making a commitment and then coming through with it, right? And so anyway, I mean, here <laughs> ended the, the sermon, but... Well, the, the most concerning part about the transactional nature of, of his politics, I mean, on the one hand, people knew what they were getting 
Maybe yeah, that's exactly. why they wanted a business yeah. person. They thought he would bring that in, right? But but I think it's important that people understand that that at least in this case of Ukraine, uh, and I would suspect in some other areas as well, these transactions are for his personal political gain, not for not promoting the, the, the national, national interest. I mean, that is the core of what's going on here, uh, is that a foreign country was asked to interfere in our elections to help the president's reelection chances, and that he used the power of his office to extract that favor from another country. Now, he didn't get it because the whistleblower, but nonetheless, that is what he tried to do. I, I think that's a form of corruption that is extremely yeah. dangerous in a democracy. And one that was explicitly addressed within yes, the, because the they understood, framers. Right, because they understood how corrosive it is. Right, right. I mean, if you don't if you do not expect that your elected leaders are, are acting in your own inter- are acting in the interests of the country, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you have some yeah. fundamental issues in a democracy. And and so the argument is, I mean, and and I think you're getting more and more of this from the Republicans is it was bad, but it's not impeachable, right. as if to say we are we are. Defining deviancy down in the God bless him, uh, <laughs> Moynihan, right? Um, the idea there's that, a phrase yeah. that keeps on giving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, oh, so we are getting to the point where what used to be absolutely scandalous has now become well, that's just the way politics is. And if that's true, and if um, you know we have to be realistic about this, and we don't even affirm the the idea that there are ideals, that there are standards then it becomes very di- difficult yeah. over time yeah. to sustain a to- democracy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still some open question to this. We all know that Donald Trump's defied norms right and left and, and, and all this. But what happens, you know, going forward? And to some extent, certain norms, once they've been yeah. broken, they're never and- coming back. Others may just be codified. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at some point that we see some kind of law that presidents have to... Candidates have to show their tax returns. We're already yeah. seeing it in some states. You know that would be sort of codifying the norm that he broke. Uh, but you know there really is the risk that some of this will just be seen as how we do yeah, things and, going forward. I mean, the corruption part of it obviously is is bad. But what concerns me more as a, as an institutionalist is the other part of it is the uh, not that the Republicans and the president are saying well they don't have a case. But that, no, the very investigation, the very exercise of this authority is illegitimate, is fake, is a sham, is a witch hunt. And, and that, to me, is the, is the deeper problem that, I, that I'm concerned might you know, resonate. Getting back to the media, that would be a useful thing yeah. to be emphasized. Of course, this is their right and prerogative, and some might argue their responsibility. But I think, and that's the problem, right, is that trying to focus on, uh, on process arguments and that sort of thing, that tends to be not really in the wheelhouse of, of most, most media these days, not very, uh, yeah, you know, so I think that's a big problem there. It is really hard to take a, you know, a step back when there's so much stuff happening yeah. every day, right? Yeah. And, and so it is very difficult to keep your perspective. I find it very difficult. Yeah, the rate of, rate of news is, yeah. is remarkable. And of course, you know, you, you asked about, you know, you, you started all this with some of these past impeachments. And of course, one of the great differences is now the rise of this more segmented media. And so, you know, one thing that you don't have that you really had in, say, the Nixon impeachment is sort of yeah. one voice right. coming out to America. Three America. channels. Three channels, but they're all saying basically right. the oh, same yeah. thing. Yeah. 
about what it is mm-hmm. that's that's going on. And so now you have this sort of epistemological kind of uh, conflict uh, where each side sees an entirely different world. Yeah. Uh, and that is, boy, yeah. that is problematic. And it becomes, again, <laughs> very difficult for yeah, democracy. Yeah, this is very damaging. Mike, you were saying how, you know, you watch the competing coverage and it makes your head spin. I Honestly, I watch the competing coverage and it leaves me yeah. to despair. Yeah. You know, if if, the, if these part these two worldviews, these two ways of seeing the same reality are so different that there's literally no where do you start to try to bring these two uh, factions together? Not in terms of objectives or in terms of morality, just in terms of what you know, like Michael said, epistemology. What are the facts here? Yeah. If we can't get to that again, sustaining a democracy yeah. becomes. Yeah, I mean, difficult. it's even it's even rough when you have people who want to engage in this because that, that's what we do uh, on the politics guys pretty much every week you know my conservative co-host and i and still we will have moments where it just seems like we're talking past each other and you know the oftentimes i'm, I'm hosting with somebody i've known for 20 plus years a guy of good intentions but he's in his universe and i'm in mine and if it's if it's that difficult for us how difficult it's got to be for, you know, everyone else who, you know, isn't that committed to that. It's just, it, it can lead you to despair, I think. And and it seems to me that where we're headed here with this particular process is, I don't see a real viable path to anything but a, a party line vote in both chambers. And that really concerns me, you know, quite a lot. I mean, I'm, maybe I'm holding out for Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or something like that. But I think that's maybe hoping against hope. You know, I think that, especially looking in the Senate, that there are a fair number of senators facing either, you know, competitive races in purple, if not blue states, uh, as well as some senators just leaving the chamber, who we really have not heard very much from. So I'm not completely convinced that the vote will be straight party line. Uh, You know, I, I, I think there's a probability well above zero that it won't be. Uh, but I'm not naive either. You know, I think there's certainly in the House, there's a real good chance it will be. Uh, but in the Senate, I think that even just looking at their own electoral dynamics, I just find it hard to believe, for example, that, uh, you know, a Susan Collins and a Joni Ertz and a, uh, Cory Booker and, uh, a Senator from North Carolina, whose name is slipping me right now, Tillis, right? Tillis are going to find it so easy, uh, to vote. Uh, against yeah. impeachment. And, and, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, you just had, you know, don't want to read too much into it, but you just had uh, Kentucky and Louisiana. I think the argument or the presumption that uh, if you don't um, cohere or um, affirm Donald Trump and his, you know, his narrative that you're going to lose, I, I don't know that that necessarily. Um, get you over the finish line the way it did maybe two years ago. And if that's the case, then, you know, if, if, it, is in, it, if it is indeed the case that these politicians are operating solely according to their self-interest, you know, if it were to be the case that their self-interest perception is going to change, well, then yeah. all bets are off. Yeah, I, I also think that from the leadership's perspective, a straight party line vote might not be actually what they need. And and, and in other words, you know, McCarthy and McConnell might both feel at some point that they've got to let some of their members just do what they need, 
even while they whip it to know that they've yeah. got the yeah, votes that they need. So that that would come across, yeah. right? You know what I mean there, Mike. That So it might come across as a bipartisan vote. They got some Republican votes. It doesn't mean it's going to put them over the top. Uh, but I, I could easily see McConnell telling some of his members, vote the way you feel like you need to vote, because the most critical issue for us from McConnell's perspective or McCarthy's is trying to ret- retain or right. gain back control. But, and and from a, less from a kind of strategic uh, Republicans, Democrats standpoint, more from kind of a uh, legitimacy standpoint, I just think having a straight party line vote either way, whether it's, you know, about, is essentially, yeah, it, that basically says that impeachment is a completely partisan thing and has nothing to do really with whether the president did it or not, or whether it was, you know, uh, worthy of removal or not. It's just about, well, I vote for my party and I vote against the other guy. And that's, to me, the damaging, the, the really damaging thing. It, it, yes. it, it delegitimizes not just the process, but the institution. And, you know, it'll also speak a lot to the president's political power if he's able to keep them yeah, together absolutely. that way. Because clearly that is of great importance to Donald Trump is to have straight party line votes because he would much rather take that into the campaign than having lost Republicans on the, yeah. on the impeachment issue. Do you guys think that, I mean, impeachment as a process, it was obviously set up in a for a very different political world. And sometimes, you know, mentioned, uh, one of you mentioned, I forget, you know, if uh, if there were a secret vote, I think Flake said that, you know, there would be, a, the vote would be very different. And, you know, that makes me wonder, is this, uh, is this the process we need in cases where, you know, given how polarized we are, uh, or is it, would a better, pro- would a different process serve us better? And of course, that sort of, way out there because not like we're going to amend the constitution anytime soon. But I mean, do, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, what, one thought is I guess they do have some other options, right? They could yeah, vote censure sure. at the end or, or something like that. Something, something short well, of the base would love that. And, you know, yeah. I wouldn't rule that out completely, but you know, it would help a lot if the courts would rule on this uh, department of justice, uh, finding or holding that a president can't yeah. be indicted. You know, if you think about the Mueller report, that whole report was just kind of jammed up because of Mueller's conviction that the DOG, DOJ has a rule that you can't indict the president. And we've seen this come up in multiple cases that are working their way through the courts. I guess it, maybe mostly those New York cases, but there's some others as well. And, and if, you know, remember, the courts have never ruled on this. They have ruled that they did rule that Clinton had to testify in a civil in a civil case having to do with Paula Jones, I believe. But there's been no particular ruling on this idea that a president can't be indicted. You know, if he could, then that might open up another sort of avenue. Uh, But right now, the DOJ obviously is not going to do that anyway, but is also, you know, constrained. Yeah. From its perspective right now, you know, to its advantage with not being able to do that. I feel like there's. I'd say I feel like there's that other question too of uh, whether or not the, uh, the the executive branch immunity sort of uh, overrides the ability of Congress to call certain witnesses and testify. Because I think certainly I would like to hear what Mulvaney and Giuliani and Bolton and some other folks have to say. And I get the sense that that might not actually happen because that's an unresolved issue as well. Well, well, sure. I mean, obviously, they've made a decision at the, you know, at the uh, at the White House that there's it is not in their interest to have these people testify. Nor is it in their interest to. I, I can't imagine just, why they're. Yeah, is exactly, it? exactly. Nor the, nor is it in their interest to even in any way legitimate right. this process. Now, now that doesn't mean 
that that gets him off the hook, right? I mean, obstruction of justice was one of the articles brought against Nixon. And if you if you are going to just completely subvert this process at every step, um, you know, I, I don't know how you could avoid that, right? I don't know how you can uh, fail to bring that kind of charge. And and I, and the only other thing I wanted to say about the, the impeachment is, you know, this is the process. And given that, that is it is the process, then I think it's incumbent upon um, Democrats, i.e., the ones bringing the the um, these starting this inquiry to be as um, deliberate and by the books as they yeah. possibly can. And I think you see that in, in the way Schiff is handling this. Um, you know, whether you, you think he's doing a good job um, in terms of, you know, achieving the end of impeachment or not, I think for the sake of the institutions we're talking about, it's at least as important and probably more that he adhere to um, the, the demands of this yeah. process. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I understand why Schiff is doing this and Pelosi is doing this, but I think there, there are costs to it. And that is, they feel like they need to move this through yes. quickly, uh, right? And that means that they've basically taken the courts out of the yeah. process uh, because courts simply don't move quickly and they don't really move on anybody else's schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whereas, you know, if you go back to the Nixon impeachment, the fact that the Supreme Court came out and said, you have to release those tapes, I mean, that was significant. That just changed yeah. everything. Uh, well, and Bush v. Gore in Florida, right? That was a big deal. I mean, and, right. it, came, and it came up really quickly. And it, and it came up, but, but I, see no, I see nothing to suggest that the yeah. courts are eager to move quickly now. And in fact, I, I, I suspect that Schiff withdrew the subpoena uh, from uh, Bolton's deputy right. Sugarman, yep. I can't. I, I, I apologize. I can't remember his name. And decided not to subpoena Bolton in the first place uh, because they 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 didn't and, want and that's, to wait. And that's 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 my that. one concern. My biggest concern, I guess, with how they're handling it is I I get the argument that well, if you push this too far into the 2020 election cycle, then it it causes all sorts. Yeah, it causes problems. And then, of course, you have that argument of, well, let's just let the people decide because we're going to have a vote anyway on the presidency. But but to me, that kind of does some potential damage to the integrity of the process as well, because if if you're making. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying that both sides are equally to blame, but I I am saying that I ideally would have wished that the Democrats had maybe worked more through the court system, even though we have this sort of. Uh, unfortunate timing, I guess, from a political perspective, because this didn't come out, you know, early enough for that to be uh, politically viable. From uh, from Schiff's perspective, he's just trying to build a case, and he may really well feel like he's got yeah. the case and doesn't really That's need the people. So yeah. it's not that, you know. So there's been a lot of emphasis on Bolton, and everybody knows that Bolton would be one one heck of an entertaining <laughs> yeah. day in a congressional hearing, they have Fiona Hill. So I'm not convinced from an evidentiary perspective that they absolutely need them. They want to because everybody will watch. You know, and of course, while all this is going on, there's still government that needs to run. I mean, this happens right in the middle of uh, uh, we still have to have a budget for the next fiscal year. And I think people tend to forget, too, with impeachment sort of uh, basically dominating everything, that this is going on as well. I was wondering, you know, what do you guys think in terms of how this affects all of the business of government that also has to, you know, be, be conducted? I mean, it's certainly not a good thing. 
I mean, Congress set up committees so that it could do multiple things at one time. That was the whole point of setting up a committee process when Congress first started operating and there was less to do, right? They did everything as a committee of the whole. Then they found that, uh, you know, specialization and expertise and being able to do multiple things at one time was a good thing. And so they set up a committee system. So, you know, there's no reason that the budget committees and the appropriations committees can't be working on their legislation. Now, where I do think you're seeing a real problem of this is in the White House, because I don't think the White House is actually capable of governing and handling the impeachment at the same time. And that's a strategic decision, but well, (laughs) strategic may be a little (laughs) bit too much. That is a decision by the president to not go about the business of governing, but instead, you know, you look at his schedule every day, he's not actually doing anything. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, but, <laughs> but also you have uh, more and more, you have uh, Senator McConnell saying things like, well, we're not going to take anything to a vote, that we don't have the president's uh, approve, pre-approval on, essentially. And so I, I, I'd say Mitch McConnell is at least somewhat to blame, and maybe he's doing that because he's recognized how erratic the president is in commitments, and he's trying to protect his members, and I get that, but I think he bears some responsibility here as well. I think that's the, the broader point, you know. I mean, the idea that, oh, this might really gum up the works, you know, it was not, this Congress was not exactly a picture no. of efficiency, you know, beforehand, <laughs> right? And, and the issues that, um, you know, the, the impeachment process might bring up, i.e. this kind of sense of enmity, animosity, less inclination to moderate or to compromise, all those things were there in spades long before this happened. So, I mean, I, you know, I just find yeah. it not a very interesting argument. Yeah, I mean, Mike, take the counterfact. Take the counterfactual. We're going into an election year, but there's no impeachment going on. Do you think either side yeah. is really eager to give no, the other hardly. side wins going yeah, into an that, election year? that's a good year? point. Of course, I mean, there are certain things that you actually, you have to have action on, and the budget, you know, the budget being one of them. So putting that right in the middle is certainly not a positive thing. That's for sure. But looking past this. I mean, there are some people who say, well, you know, Donald Trump, uh, he's an outlier and we can expect a return to uh, kind of more of a return to normalcy, whether it's 2021 or 2025, only Donald Trump can get away with this sort of norm breaking and and so forth. And uh, I think there are a lot of Republicans uh, who would like to believe this, Uh, But then there are some Republicans who say, you know what, this is a a new era, a new time, and we're going to see just all out war of all against all. And every every president's going to be impeached from now on. And this is the beginning of the end. Uh, Maybe Andrew Sullivan, he was I I know you guys had him on recently. It was a great interview. And I think he ended the interview right with saying, well, he thinks this is pretty much the end for for liberal democracy, I guess. And. Where do you guys fall on that? I mean, are you are you more optimistic about that or, or not so much? Yeah. So, I mean, on the sense of impeachments, you know, Obama wasn't impeached and they couldn't find anything on him. Hey, not to say yeah. that they wouldn't have if they But they couldn't find something. anything on him. Right. So, I mean, one lesson there is don't be corrupt and have really good White House counsel who instruct you on how yeah. to behave properly and you, you can keep yourself out of trouble. But I, I think maybe the larger issue here is what is the consequence for the Republican Party of this impeachment? So if there is no consequence, then I, I think you're right. <laughs> you know, just see it. Well, we'll do this too, and we can just do what we want, and uh, we'll be in this perpetual battle. Uh, but if they do take a beating for it, 
which I think is not outside the realm of possibility. I'm not predicting it. I just think it's not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, and, and it's a much smaller Republican Party. Uh, then maybe there'll be some thought about uh, uh, yeah. going forward. Yeah, do you? I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, exactly. I don't feel like. Well, I think a good beat. I think a good beating does does lead political yeah. parties to have to reappraise a little. Of bit. course, of course. And but you know. There was a memo that came out after Romney's defeat in which, you know, the Republicans said, here's all the things we have to do. Well, that and was wrong. Ex- <laughs> it, it, and, and they did exactly the opposite and they and got they reelected, won. Yeah. right? So the, fa- so the point is, you know, the point is avoid, the your, avoid your consultants. Happen, you know, and, and um, anybody who has any confidence in either a pessimistic or an optimistic point of view, I think, is no, no, just but you're, you're missing, mistaken. You're missing my point. They, they will know full well if yeah. they took a well, beat. Well, yeah. Oh, sure. Okay, I mean, if they are, if they lose the Senate, which is within the realm of possibility, mm-hmm. if they lose the White House, and if their House majority were to continue to shrink until it's really just sort and of the hardcore. state court, legislatures. You know, and they take mm-hmm. some beatings in the states, which, we, which might also be which possible. Might also because happen. they have a lot of vulnerable mm-hmm. people there, given how many wins they had in the last 15 years. Uh, then, you know, maybe there'll be some self-reflection and new leadership that emerges. Uh, I don't know that that will happen. I just think that taking electoral beating is something that might that could well, potentially lead to something. It some could change. be, but yeah. it could also just reinforce and and um, cauterize these these sen- this sense of outrage yeah. and disconnection and um, and enmity towards the other. Right? You have well, a you stronger have- Republican Party, a stronger base that is more associated with sense of of out of resentment i mean well and you also have really really severe delegitimation of some governing institutions and so that is going to be very hard to come back regardless this is not going to just turn on a dime the idea that once donald trump is out of office everything's going to go back the way it was i i just think that's just yeah that's that is naive Again, not what I'm saying, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I wonder if it's if it's a case where you know you need both the environment and the individual. And Donald Trump was either the right or the exactly wrong man at the at the at the right time, essentially to take advantage of our moment in time. And whether or not absent a uh, unique personality like Donald Trump, we can. You know, we can uh, if it, how likely it is that we're going to have more people who come up in either the Republican or Democratic Party say, well, this is the way to do it, to basically forget about all the norms and to just ram through as sort of authoritarian populist sort of leadership, whether it's on the left or the right. And, and to me, that's maybe the the greater concern that perhaps our system is is vulnerable to that sort of thing because of the polarization that we see. And, uh, you know, do we have more Donald Trumps waiting in the wings who've learned that lesson and will, you know, sweep in after this? And and that's that's my concern, I guess. Well, and who could be uh, far more yeah, strategic, exactly. far more yeah, politically yeah. savvy far than more Donald Trump was, yeah. right? And if that were to be the case, then yeah, then like then a like really a like a trouble. like a Putin I mean, type you of see person. that in other. I mean, in if you take countries. you know the if you take Putin's sort of strategic knowledge and put it into Donald Trump and have that person running things, well, there'd be all this corruption, but we wouldn't know anything about it because the people would be much more competently corrupt, I would think. So there's you know. And the people who were, yeah. were trying to bring that to people's attention, yeah, exactly. would be in far they, more they'd trouble disappear than they or something. Right yeah, exactly. That, that's my concern. So, well, let, let's not be uh, maybe too pessimistic. I'm wondering, did you feel like there are 
real things, viable things, not pie in the sky stuff that, that we can do to maybe make this less likely. I mean, I, I feel like that with both of our podcasts, we're kind of trying to do that to get people uh, in, in, you know, in the case of the politics guys, sort of talking to each other from opposite sides and the democracy works to sort of pull back and look at these bigger, more fundamental issues. But of course, our impact is sadly much more limited than we'd like it to be, right? I mean, and, and we see, you know, whether it's the podcast world or the regular media world, where it's the extreme partisanship preaching to the choir that really gets all the, the virality. And, and so sometimes that depresses me a little bit. I mean, well, what do you guys think? I think there's an audience these days for, for, uh, for commentary, that is not deep in the yeah. partisan mire, that people are actually taking a hard look on their democracy. You know, I think that I think that when they see democracy kind of threatened, then they sort of wake up a little bit. And I, I believe we've seen that over the last couple of years. Uh, I think we've seen it in the way that books like Democracy Dies moves yep. to the How top of the bestseller. How Democracies Die moves to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, that podcasts on topics like this are, you know, gaining an audience. People are listening. They're coming back week after week. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you have to start with this. I mean, I think people have I, actually, Lauren Duca, we had her here um, a year ago, and she said, democracy is not a self-cleaning litter box. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really good phrase because I think that's exactly how most Americans regarded it, right? That this was something that we had set in motion, we're all fine, we don't have to pay much attention to it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't require much of us. But if you go back to the founders, that's precisely not what they thought. And once you understand that democracy is not particularly natural, it requires skills and, and dispositions uh, of us that are have to be learned and taught and it's hard it's difficult to listen to someone with whom you disagree and come out of that yeah. without you know coming to blows once you come once you understand that then i think and, and i think people are more aware of those realities than they were you know say yeah. three years ago and so because of that, I do think there, there is a, 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 at least grounds for hope. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was talking to uh, yeah. Larry Lessig on the show a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and uh, he said that, you know, one of the outcomes, I guess you could say, of the progressive movement is it, it, it put a greater burden on us as individuals to, to be more informed by making the system more small d democratic, and, and that does take quite a lot of work and, and uh, much more much more impact if we are sorry much more effort than if we had a much more elitist system of government and and it's and it's still an open yeah. question whether or not people really want that or not I mean when Andrew Sullivan was here I said gosh this reminds me of the Grand Inquisitor <laughs> you know yeah that uh, uh, you know do people really want to be free yeah. you know and <laughs> that's yeah. still maybe I, I think that's a, that's a fair question so for, for people who, and, and definitely, I, I want to encourage all politics guys listeners to, to check out Democracy Works. I've, I haven't heard an episode yet that I didn't think was well worth my time. But for people who haven't listened to uh, Democracy Works yet, is there any place that you, know, you would recommend they, they jump in or, or episodes that you feel particularly uh, good about that you know, would be a great starting point? Uh, well, sure. Great question, and, and I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Thanks. You know, uh, we did uh, we did an interview 
with uh, Nancy Rosenblum and her co-author from Russell Muirhead. Russell Muirhead. Nice, Jenna, <laughs> pulling it out. <laughs> we both were like, who wrote following. wrote an absolutely tremendous little book uh, called. A lot of people are saying. A lot of people are saying the mm-hmm. new conspiracism mm-hmm. in American politics, where they're talking about the rise of conspiracy theories and new sorts of conspiracy theories. But you know, when they get into talking about sort of the the epistemological disconnect among Americans right now, I think it is just very, very powerful stuff, and that they really isolate, first of all, why the spreading of conspiracy theories is so bad and so dangerous to a democracy, and it is, why it's especially bad when that is coming directly out of the White House, and what it means for democracy that some Americans are living in a conspiratorial world and others are living in a fact-based world. Uh, so I think I, 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 that's one of my favorites and a book that really had, a, had a, an impact on me. It's a really good yeah. book. And, and the Andrew Sullivan oh, yes. one is very so good, well too, written. because Andrew Sullivan is just sort of brilliant and interesting yeah. and provocative. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. the other one that comes to my mind is uh, Larry Diamond. In his, uh, he has a new book called Ill Wins. And, yeah. you know, he, he, it's, a, it's a very brave book for an academic because he names names and he says this is bad. I'm not talking about um, in the United States. I'm talking about... How he how he evaluates the threats of uh, Russia and China to democracy, not just in the United States but throughout the world. And um, like I say, it's 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 an impressive book for someone who is genuinely one of the you know leading figures in democracy in the academy for yeah. you know decades. Oh, we should probably plug our two, our only returning podcast, guest, which is uh, Laura Rosenberger, who's the director of the Alliance for Protecting Democracy at the. Uh, at the German Marshall Fund in uh, D.C. And a proud <laughs> alumna. And a proud alum of Penn State, yeah. And, uh, you know, her her sense of how authoritarian regimes try to interfere in democracies and wedge open existing conflicts and cleavages. So it's beyond just interfering in elections. It's an effort to sow chaos and discord more, more generally uh, is really... I think it's very interesting. It's really interesting. And, and important. So not yeah. only is democracy really hard work, but there are people who are working very hard to undermine yeah. it. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, yeah. A, it's good times. You know, and, and our, our, our format on the politics guys is a little bit different. We do kind of a combination of interviews and then, and then a weekly review every weekend. But uh, I, I'll plug a, a couple of places where people might want to start who are, who are new to uh, the politics guys. A couple weeks ago, I had a, an interview with uh, Representative Thomas Massey, who I agree with on almost nothing related to policy. And it was it was such a great conversation because we talked largely about corruption in Congress. And he talked about, you know, buying committee seats and things like that. And it it, it kind of went in really well with my conversation I had the week after that with Larry Lessig. Of course, corruption, as you guys know, I'm sure, is one of his kind of key issues. And so you wouldn't necessarily put Thomas Massey and Larry Lessig in the same sentence, uh, generally speaking, but, but it really worked out uh, uh, pretty well. And uh, I have a conversation yeah, and I have a conversation coming up. Uh, a returning guest, actually, uh, Jacob Hacker, who I think has just done some amazing work on uh, inequality and healthcare and a bunch of issues. And so I'm always excited when I get a chance to talk with him. And I'm guessing probably by the time this is up, uh, that that'll be up. Uh, that'll be up as well. So uh, so yeah. Well, hey guys, I, I just wanted to thank you. This has been—I'm sure we could go on forever—but this has been a, a great conversation, and I know I enjoyed it. I hope you guys did. 
Yeah, sure. It was lots of fun. Thank you. And thanks for the work you're doing, too. Take care, guys. 